This is Charlottesville Tomorrow. Charlottesville Tomorrow is a nonprofit organization engaging the public on critical quality of life issues so we make informed choices for our community's future. Visit us on the web at seavilletomorrow.org. The League of Women Voters hosted a forum for Albemarle County School Board candidates on October 19, 2017, at the central branch of the Jefferson-Madison Regional Library. Three seats on the county school board are up for election this year. Graham Page is running for re-election as the Samuel Miller District Representative. Julian Waters is challenging Page for the seat. Katrina Coulson and Mary McIntyre are running for the Rio District seat on the county school board. Rio District incumbent Pam Moynihan is not running for re-election. School board chairwoman Kate Acuff is running unopposed for re-election as the Jack Jewett District representative. The candidate forum was moderated by Michelle Kellerman of the League of Women Voters. This recording starts with Michelle Kellerman. Okay, Okay, good evening. Uh, My name is Michelle Kellerman. I'm the League of Women Voters webmaster and newsletter editor for many, many years. And also for many years, I have been doing school board candidates forums. I looked back at my my little file and I discovered that it goes back to the year 2000 when we first started in Albemarle County to elect school board members. Up until that time, school board members were appointed by district uh, by the Board of Supervisors. And so it's, uh, it's an important task now to elect your school board member. And that's why the League has uh, dedicated itself to providing candidate forums, not only for the school board, but for uh, Board of Supervisors, also in Amoral County, which will be next week, by the way, um, next Thursday, I believe it is. Anyway, um, the League has always played a respective role in helping the, the helping educate the electorate. That's sort of what we think of as our job. And um, we don't ever support in any partisan way any particular party or candidate. And in fact, we have very strict rules about candidates not having any uh, uh, signs or anything at any of our forums. Um, But this evening, we're here to give these candidates a chance to introduce themselves. And in many ways, local elections are the most important elections a voter has. These are your people who are taking care of your neighbors and your children in a a very important job, which is our public education, our public schools. Um, There are seven members on the Albemarle County Board of Super, uh, School Board. Um, they represent the uh, uh, magisterial district in which they live, and the terms are staggered. So this election, there are candidates running for Samuel Miller District, for Rio District, and Jack Jewett District. And it's quite 
wonderful to see that there is more than one candidate in Samuel Miller and in Rio because um, that indicates that there's interest in the electorate for these positions and that's very important again. These are your children, our neighbors that are being represented. So um, tonight the um, school board candidates are going to introduce themselves and then we are going to pose questions to them. I have, um, I should have gotten them out, I will in a moment here. Uh, I have three by five cards. If anyone in the audience would like to submit a question in addition to the ones that are going to be asked um, from um, various questions that we've collected, um, then uh, feel free and I'll, I'll get those out in a minute. And just to keep things rolling along, we have a timer. She's not going to be, uh, she's not going to chop you off in the middle of the sentence, but she will give you a, a feeling for when it's two minutes. And, and that's just, just so she'll have a yellow paddle for 30 seconds and uh, a red paddle saying, you know, it's time is up. And our wonderful time is Susan Roberts, who's also a longtime uh, member of the league and, and a good friend. And, and uh, so we're, you know, we're, we've, we've got a little kind of, you know, a little act going together here, and you know, we'll work together. And um, uh, so let me again tell you how this will work. You'll do um, uh, two minute intros, and we, this has really worked out well. We drew lots, and it just happened that the two Samuel Miller uh, candidates are sitting together, and Kate Acuff, who is, who is the only candidate from Jack Jewett, is in the middle and, and is presently on the board, and we have the two candidates from uh, Rio District here also. So it just worked out beautifully. Um, if you're podcasting or streaming, you can see it comes right down the line here. Uh, and so we'll start that way, but once we get doing the questions, I will call on you in uh, somewhat of a random order, just so the same person isn't started each time. And um, we'll mix it up as best as we can. Um, let me just take one moment and um, get out the 3x5 cards and just I'll just put them on a chair here and again if anyone in the uh, audience wants to pose a question, um, we prefer not doing it orally, we would rather you write it down so that I can have a chance to look at it before I present it to the candidates. And uh, just, a, just one moment delay, <laughs> get the cards out. I was sitting here and I forgot I needed to do this, but anyway, that was like, it, you know, it helps just to give everybody a, yeah. a card and a pencil, and that way they won't be fussing around if they have questions. There we go. Yep, is that enough? Well, there's more here for you. Okay, so introductions first, as you can see from the signs. From Samuel Miller District, Julian Waters and Graham Page. From Jack Jewett, Kate Acuff. 
from Rio District, Mary McIntyre and Katrina Paulson. Yep. Okay. And so you will have two minutes to give an introduction. Uh, we'd like to know uh, about you. And Julian, we'll start with you. Is that the microphone? Yes. <laughs> right. Wait, it might be caught in the chair there. It is caught in the chair. Yeah. Yeah. Unravel things. All right. So, good evening, everyone. My name is Julian Waters. I'd like to first thank the legal members for hosting the forum this evening. Um, I've lived in Alamo County for my entire life, and in addition to that, I've been in the public school system for 13 years of my life. I just graduated from Western Alcohol High School this past May. Um, and during that time, for three years in high school, um, I was involved as an education policy advisor at Alamo County. In fact, one of my, um, one, one of the policy units that I'm most proud of is, is making sure that students have access to confirmed credit opportunities that are not just based on seat time. Because myself in high school, I was not a very good test-based learner. I did well with experiential learning and, and project-based learning. And so what the, the policies that I was involved with um, as, as policy advisor really allowed me to take that to take that perspective and make a positive difference for students like me who had those same struggles. Uh, aside from that, I've also been involved with the High School 2022 program, which is being rolled out alongside changing graduation requirements from the Virginia Department of Education. Um, and I feel like both of those uh, give me a, a, a good bearing on where we're going in terms of, of, of pedagogy within the county. Uh, outside of that, I've been involved with the Tom Tom Festival uh, in, 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 in Charlottesville. Um, and I love spending time outdoors. Now, I think that on the school board, what we really need is we need a perspective that can speak accurately to the interests of students and teachers in the modern classroom. Education changes from year to year, and especially in the school system, change has been something that's constant um, throughout my experience as a student. And I think that it's critical that we have somebody who can speak to those interests uh, on the school board. Now, when it comes to my actual policy agenda, I have three main items. The first is uh, creating equity uh, through increasing our early childhood education and preschool access. The second is reforming and improving our transportation, and the third one is making sure that we do more to reward our teachers uh, through teacher compensation. Thank you. Thank you. All right, good afternoon. Or, yes, feel good afternoon again. Uh, and thanks to Women's League also for um, sponsoring the uh, forum this afternoon. Um, I'm Graham Page, a lifelong resident of Mile County. A little bit longer lifelong. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've received my, I mean, my uh, bachelor's degree from Hampton University and my master's from the University of Virginia. I've taught for 30 years in Virginia, 25 years here in Albemarle County, two out at Jack Hewitt, and then 23 at Western Albemarle. Um, during those years, I've had a lot of experience in the classroom and also involved with parents and other people within the community. So I think I have a very rich background in education. After retiring from teaching, I was on the Long Range Planning Committee, um, the Equity and Diversity appointee of uh, Pam Moran. So uh, during that time, I had a lot of time to sort of look at different things within the county to see maybe how um, the relationship was between the supervisors and the boards of the school board at times for uh, coming up with um, the budget and even with planning, uh, long range planning here in the county. I've also been really, really involved in things within our community. I've been on the board from the P for the Piedmont Housing Association, no longer on that, 
and I'm currently on the board for um, the Scottsdale Museum and also the Southern Alamal Family Practice in Esmond. Um, I've also been uh, active in fraternal organizations here in the community, the one under black men of Central, Central Virginia. And all of those experiences, I think, really add to my background uh, as a physician or for a physician on the school board. So thanks. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Lee. And thank all of you for coming out. I'm Kate Acuff. I am currently the chair, in my second year as chair of the Albemarle County School Board, running for a second term from Jack Jewett. My background, I have not been here for my life time, uh, but I've been here for the past decade, and my, I bring to the school board my background, skills, and training in law and public policy, public health, and science. And I have astonishingly applied all of those in my role uh, as a school board member. Uh, Albemarle County Schools, I think the county, the community can feel very good about the quality of our schools. We recently moved up to the number three slot by the niche ranking organization in terms of top performing schools in the state of Virginia, and we are in the top 5% nationally. Notwithstanding that, there are areas that we can improve upon, and one of them is what Graham mentioned, is equity and access. Uh, although our students globally do very well, there are certain pockets of our students, I would say pockets because 30% of our students are low income, and that group, uh, as a group, uh, significantly underperforms some of their classmates, and I'm very dedicated to working through possible uh, interventions and uh, opportunities for students so we can engage every student. The next big thing that I'm really focused on is capital. Uh, we had a wonderful response from the community in the referendum last year. We had 74% uh, approval of, uh, of a referendum to begin uh, building additional capacity, uh, modernizing our schools, and, and finishing our security improvements at the remaining four schools. Those are two key areas that I would like to focus on in my next term, should I, should I be re-elected? Uh, yeah, whichever suits you. How's that? Okay. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mary McIntyre. Um, I have two children who attend Rivers Elementary School. As a teacher, I've worked in five different school systems since 2003. Last year, I worked part-time at Agner Park doing reading intervention. Um, I have three degrees in education, from uh, one from the University of North Carolina Greensboro, one from the University of Michigan, and one from the University of Hawaii. But that's not actually what's most important about me. What's most important, what's more important than where I went to school or the degrees that I have are the experiences that I've had and the things that I've done. Everyone carries the experience they've collected through their life, and those experiences help guide the decisions that they make. Across our country, our school boards are filled with people who have very little education experience. Imagine the impact that has had on the decisions that they have made and what has created our schools the way we know them now. My life has always been centered around education. My parents were both teachers and my sister's a teacher. And I decided to become a teacher because I had teachers who connected with me and inspired me. In my first teaching job in Raleigh, North Carolina, I was put in a trailer behind the school. I felt like I wasn't valued and it was not safe. In fact, my trailer was broken into five times in three years. 
In my second teaching job in Newport News, our school had 100% economically disadvantaged students. We were closing the achievement gap with an extended school day and a full health clinic in our school, and we used a restorative justice approach to school discipline. In my third job in Germany, I saw how the Department of Defense had mastered the teaching of highly trained and diverse students in the military community. In Hawaii, the school where I taught was struggling to implement Common Core with class sizes around 35 students. Teachers there had two or three jobs just to survive. Those are the experience that, experiences that I would bring with me, and I didn't learn those in college. I only gained them through my time in public education, and that is what would help shape the decisions I would make as a school board member. Hi, my name is Katrina Carlson, and I'm running for the Rabbit District seat in the Elmont County School Board. I said it in the last forum, and I'm going to say it again. The three most important things to know about me are that I care about children, I care about my community, and I care about education. Education has always been important to me because both of my parents dropped out of high school, and I saw them struggle with the effects of that decision for my whole childhood. And during that time, they made sure to stress to me the value of hard work, the need for service, and the importance of getting a good education so that I had better opportunities than they had. That mindset is what pushed me to attend Yale when I thought that college was impossible, and it's what motivated me to become an educator and work with children. Working with children is also what brought me to UVA Law, where I focused on child advocacy. And what that means is I was a CASA volunteer right down the street. I interned at the Child Protection Unit, and I was part of the Child Advocacy Clinic, which allowed me to work with children in educational settings as in conjunction with just children in the Legal Aid Center. After I graduated, I took a job at Buford Middle School. I also became pregnant with my second son and decided to take time off to spend with my own children. My oldest is starting at Agnihurt next year, and his brother is right behind him, so you could say that I have the next eternity of 6 a.m. wake-up calls, but also investment in our local school system. Right now, we have a changing demographic. Over half the students entering the Urban Ring Elementary Schools, our Urban Ring Elementary Schools are low income, and that number is expected to grow. Now is the time to put someone in office who has a proven track record of working on behalf of our community and our children, who has experience as a teacher and with educational law, and who knows how important it is, through my own personal perspective, that we are giving our kids opportunities. We need to be making sure that not only are our students graduating, but that they're graduating with clear paths to career, educational, and personal success. It's important for our community. I also, since I'm not out of time, I say thank you so much for having me. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you all. Um, the first set of questions that I have, uh, I'm not sure if these were given to you in advance. Uh, I don't think anything was. No, okay, I just, just double-checking. Um, okay. Uh, these questions were came from the um, PTO Council of Albemarle County, and so some of them may, you might think, well, that's that's the other district. But remember, you're going for school board for the entire county. So even though they may be district uh, precise, um, think about how you would answer if you were sitting on the school board. And so I think, Graham, I'm going to start with you because I'm just going to keep moving around. Um, the first question was, with the exploding growth of homes in the Crozet area, there is concern that not enough attention is being paid to overcrowding in the Western County schools at the elementary, middle, and high school levels. Hundreds of children now live in recently built homes in this area, adding exponentially to the school-age population. 
What measures would you take as a school board member to ensure that growth in the future Western feeder pattern is adequately addressed? Um, that's a pretty tough question. <laughs> um, I know that we we are planning, uh, after the referendum, we are planning to do additions at Western Out Mile. And also, we are possibly looking at um, doing some redistricting in that area, possibly taking some of the kids from Crozet into other areas. Mm -hmm. um, the question did say something about uh, what I would do to address the... the just the, the, the greater numbers of... of Great, the greater numbers of students now that are in Crozet. Yeah. Those would be the two main things, I think. We'd probably mm -hmm. have to look at a, additional uh, building in that area, mm -hmm. possibly at Brownsville and some of the schools in the western part of the county, and also possibly doing some redistricting. Mm -hmm. That would always be a tough thing to do because most parents who have their kids that are still in school, they really just know that that's probably the best school in the world. So they probably wouldn't want to be moved to another school. That would be a really tough issue. But that would probably be one way to do it. Mm -hmm. We also are planning some meetings with the Planning Commission. And the Planning Commission, through a joint meeting with the school board, probably will be able to let us know more about possible growth areas. So that too could sort of give us a heads up. Mm -hmm. We might be able to find out a little bit more in advance when certain uh, subdivisions are being planned in a certain area, like for example. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll just we'll move down the line, Kate. Well, you're right about the growth in the Western feeder pattern. Uh, this past, although the numbers are preliminary, there was a jump in 55 students at Western Elmore High School at the 10-day census. Uh, there's a slight decrease uh, at uh, Elmore High School. But the bottom line is that in our planning right now for what to do about high schools, uh, we have been told by our consultants that the overcrowding at Western Albemarle percentage-wise is going to outstrip that at Albemarle High School. So for the high schools, we're looking at uh, a solution that will address both the capacity and the modernization of all four of our high schools and impact all four 4,000, just not under 4,500 students. So we, need, we know we need to do something there. With respect to the elementary school growth, um, Crozet Elementary, an addition on Crozet Elementary has been on the oversight, the capital oversight wish list for some time. We're looking very hard at the numbers because the growth is pretty strong in that western feeder pattern. Uh, and I suspect that uh, the priority of an ex expansion at Crozet will come sooner rather than later. Um, the Oversight Committee will be meeting, I'm actually on the Oversight, Capital Oversight Committee, uh, have two meetings in November to look at those priorities and look at the, some more granular numbers. As Graham said, you know, we work very hard to try to get the numbers right. We recently uh, contracted or uh, collaborated with uh, Cooper's Weldon to get better numbers. We're really, really good. Uh, as a school division of predicting overall growth. We know we're going to have 160 more students, but it's much more difficult to pinpoint where they are. We do look at new building permits and such, but I suspect there may have to be some consideration of Brownsville versus Crozet Elementary, and I think it will be an expansion at, 
and closing. Okay. Um, yep. Another. Okay. Yeah, here. Oh, sorry. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we'll get. We'll, we'll get. We'll get into it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely a concern knowing that uh, the calculations that the county is using when they're determining what their projection is going to be for enrollment. Um, from what I understand, I attended a long-range planning committee meeting, and she explained that they take into account birth data, but that they can't really factor in developments that are in the pipeline, because so many times a development, it looks like they're going to be building a thousand homes, and then something happens with the financing, and it falls through. Um, or it doesn't sell as fast as they thought it was going to sell, and so it doesn't bring the numbers that they were thinking. So we can't necessarily construct a brand new school um, for a development that hasn't happened yet. Uh, I do know that Jose um, is on is on the list for needing an addition because they uh, they will have a recording, but Brownsville is, is already pretty much at its limit and can't really be expanded. I think you want to avoid schools getting too big. Um, I know that, that there is a certain threshold where a school gets too big to be easily managed um, and to make sure the students have all the resources that they need. Um, I also want to say too that if we could ensure that the county, when they are negotiating um, with future development companies as far as getting zoning changed or um, in the process of trying to get permission to build new neighborhoods to try and do what they did at Brook Hill, which is to get land proffered to the county or um, as part of that equation, taking into account that they know we're going to need a school or we're going to need more space um, for a school, then I think that that would, that would certainly help the process. So, yeah, um, I would like to avoid redistricting as much as possible because I just think redistricting is, is um, it's hard on schools, it's hard on families, and it is more of a temporary solution. Um, and, and people have said they want community schools. They want their children to be in the schools that are in the community where they live, close to their homes and around their friends, and I think that should be our goal. So one of the problems with not going first is I've listened to a lot, and the question is, is so far back in my mind, um, and you guys all have great answers. So I would basically reiterate a lot of the same things. So to summarize, I think we need a lot of long-term planning. Um, we have concerns for overcrowding in almost all of our schools. I've been attending redistricting meetings for the school that my son's going to be attending, and um, they just changed the numbers at the last meeting, saying, well, now actually we're predict predicted to not be over this year, but maybe the year, year after that. So. I think it's really important that we get rid of temporary solutions. They're an economic drain. I too taught in a, a trailer, and while it was nice to have my own bathroom and coffee machine, it was ultimately a, a big waste of money because we had to pay for that trailer for all those years, ultimately to then just build the classrooms that we needed in the get-go. Um, so yeah, more collaboration with the long-term planning commission. I really like the joint board meeting that you guys had with the planning commission. That was wonderful to attend. I would love to see more of that in our future so we can get ahead of some of these problems. Mm -hmm. Long-term planning, um, to, to reiterate. Uh, I do want to stress that, that at this point, the enrollment is is what I would consider to be a wave, uh, and that at some point, you'll begin to see turnover uh, in the student enrollment, and so it is to be seen whether we're currently riding an enrollment high as the old trail development continues, or if it will slope off somewhat as turnover begins to occur within that residence area. I don't think that it will be significant. I think that we will have to look at infrastructure needs. Um, 
And when we look at infrastructure, long-range planning is what we, we need to consider, but um, I actually just had a meeting with, uh, with Dr. Beth Costa, who's the principal of Henley Middle School, uh, and one of my questions to her was how they're coping with, with increased enrollment. Henley is approaching enrollment of 900 students. Um, and she actually mentioned to me that what they're focusing on in terms of instruction is that they create sub-communities within the school environment. And so certainly when it comes down to instructional needs, making sure that students are getting the attention and the small community feel uh, that they need to, to have genuine productive instruction, that, that trying to create a developmental aspect to it in addition to a physical capacity, um, um, to, excuse me, a physical capacity development uh, can be can be just as beneficial to ensuring that students are getting the instruction that they need. So I think that ensuring that we have uh, the necessary organization done with students and teachers at the individual school levels can help us in, as, in addition to exploring the increase in, increased capacity in terms of infrastructure. Okay, thank you. Um, this next question, remembering, remembering that these questions are coming from the Avonmoral uh, PTO Council, it's actually right in line with this, and, and so I, t I think I'll just start on this end so you don't be, be at the tail end of it. Because I wasn't complaining. <laughs> and I, I, I know you were. <laughs> but um, it's, it, the question was, further along the lines of the Western feeder pattern growth explosion, what planning would you support for older schools like Meriwether Lewis, which already have numerous trailer classrooms and are bursting at the seams? Yeah, this question, to be honest, I think it illustrates a problem we have throughout our county because I'm hearing the same question in my district about completely different schools. You know, what are we going to do with the fact that I'm at Agner Hurt and they're saying we're our album wrong, and they're saying we're bursting at the seams, we're putting students out in the hallway to do a pull-out project. So the fact that it's across the county, and I'm sure Kate's going to have a wonderful answer about this because she always brings up infrastructure and the concerns, some of those bigger concerns we have. I will bring it back to saying we need to be very um, prudent and purposeful with the spending that we have so that we can get ahead of these things because we, are, we do have to make updates to the schools that we have um, and we need to account for a growing population. And I know that our last bond re referendum had great support. I voted for it. Um, but we have a lot of things on the horizon, horizon and we need to be making sure that we're yeah, being re fiscally responsible and planning for the future. This is very much similar to the last question. Yes. Well, I think um, one of the issues with older schools is um, it's not just necessarily the building and the age of the building and the wear and tear. Um, I certainly think we need to keep our buildings in great shape and up upgrade and modernize them as much as possible. Um, but older schools that have been in the community for a long time are often the center of that community and they really are a place where people gather for sports events um, and Girl Scout meetings and you know, our Girl Scout troop meets at Woodbrook Elementary. Um, and so the, the school at the center of a community, I think the schools of the future are going to be more of a collaborative effort. I think that uh, one of the things that we should consider, and it would really be a good use of fiscally of our resources, is trying to put things like a health clinic, either in a school or right next to a school, um, a police substation, because you know the, the property belongs to the county, so it would make a lot of sense so that they could have an uh, outlet for their out. 
Um, a, a fire department could be also in the same area as the school. A library, a food pantry. Um, I think schools as insular, siloed buildings that are only a building where we bring children to educate them and then send them home at the end of the day, those are the schools of the past and the schools of the future are more um, of a community center atmosphere and that's something that we really should consider. Uh, we're going to go this way. <laughs> oh, right. You forgot the mic. Right. You're right in the middle. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this way. Um, Thank you. We do have an aging inventory of schools. The average age of the core school in the county is 48 years old. Albemarle High School, for example, the main building. It's had additions, but the main building was built in, opened in 1953 for a capacity of 800 students. And some of the infrastructure in that school, like the hallway width, can't be changed because they're weight-bearing walls. And we now have 2,000 students that can only be accommodated by having a nine-trailer conglomeration into eight classrooms in the back of the building, our learning, mobile learning cottage. And both uh, Mary and Katrina were right. We have, after years of riddling down the numbers of trailers we've had to use to low, the low 30s, we're back up to almost 50 trailers just to accommodate uh, all the needs that we have in our schools. We typically, except for now Albemarle and Scottsville, try not to put students out there, or at least not put students out there all day long to make a lot for music or something. A lot of the, the uh, special staff are out there, like the learning specialists or the psychologists and such. But it's still a disjunctive part of, of the environment. Um, we have two, two issues, at least, going forward. One, the, big, the big issue, I'll be quick, is that we got very behind in our capital projects with the Great Recession. The funding that we had for, for capital went to make sure the roofs didn't leak and the HVAC worked. We haven't built a new school since 2006, and we've added about 1,200 students, which is the size of Monticello High School. So we do have, before the referendum and this expansion at Woodbrook, 30% of our students were in overcrowded schools with, a, with a, Anyway, and we need to build capacity, modernize the spaces, and, and that's what's on my wish list. Um, when I served on the Long Range Planning Committee, I had a chance to visit some of the schools in the county. When I taught, it was at Western Albemarle and Jewett, so both of those schools were really well equipped and fairly new at the time that I was there. But on the Long Range Planning Committee, I had a chance to visit quite a few of the schools. And I can see that within our county, even though we have as a whole very excellent facilities, some of those facilities weren't as good at some schools as they were at the newer schools. So one of the main things that I sort of stressed when I ran for election in 2015 was parity among our schools. Red Hill was one really good example. I don't think the school had been renovated for about 30 to 40 years. So when you looked at Red Hill compared to some of the newer schools, you could really see a great disparity between what was there uh, compared to the newer schools. So um, the main thing that I would want to make sure is that all of our schools are up to par. I want to make sure that all of our students, no matter what school they are in, in, in Alpha County, that they have the very best facilities that we can provide. 
and regardless of what the school is, no matter what the zip code for that kid is, that they all have the same facilities. So having parity among our schools would be my main issue. I certainly agree with what Mr. Peach says, um, and specifically what, what you, you mentioned, I, I think of Yancey. Um, and when we look at uh, Yancey Elementary School and Woodbrook Elementary School, two schools which, uh, when Yancey stood up and had a very similar number of, of, dis of economically disadvantaged students, within a four to five year period, Woodbrook had received over 50 school modernization projects and Yancey had received zero. So certainly parity when it comes to infrastructure expansion and modernization is critical. Uh, when I went to Maryland Lewis Elementary, uh, that was eight or nine years ago, um, and I, I went back and visited uh, this past uh, this, this past school year, um, and I, I it, it doesn't look really any different to me. I when I think that when we look at schools that aren't in a critically uh, developing area or, or that aren't in, in, in a critical growth area, that we we, we tend to, to sort of forget about them, uh, and, and we tend to say, well, they're kind of doing fine, so we're just going to keep an eye on it and keep in the background, and it kind of stays on the back burner. Um, but we really need to make sure that, that, we're, that we're keeping a, a lid and we're keeping a strong focus on where our enrollment projections are. I think we should be using the Weldon Cooper projections from UVA, which are more accurate when it comes down to a precise location basis and per school uh, much more frequently because it allows us to, 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 to really plan in advance of where we're going to need to be to, to, to be looking at capital improvement projects. Uh, I also think that we need to stop playing catch up when it comes to capital improvement projects and start exploring using a, a rolling uh, capital improvement model uh, that looks uh, to, to, to try and figure out what we can do several years in advance when it comes to, to, to catching up with enrollment or making sure that our schools are on the same modernization page as the other schools in the district. Thank you. And again, just mentioning that all these questions came from the PTO Council, and, and it's flowing very nicely because now we're up to the question about the looking at building a new high school. And it flows right from what we've been talking about. What are your considerations for building a new high school in the North County area, which has been talked about? Or what influences do you see from the proposed other solutions to having a high school, perhaps that's not a physical building, but a, a, a project, so, so, so to speak, where there will be areas for students to uh, pursue different um, curriculum. And um, do, do you see any, any other viable alternatives to the population growth? For example, in Northern Albemarle, we've been talking about Western Peter schools and Western schools, and there is also a population explosion in, in the northern end of the county. So, um, Kate, I'm going to let you start if you can get the mic back, and we'll work this way. We'll come down the line this way. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've been going down the line. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yes, I, 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 I rever reversed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have been working with uh, a consultant. We've been doing two things with respect to high schools. One is a complete revamping of our high school curriculum <coughs> and also uh, looking at our needs for capacity and for modernization of our four high schools that house jointly about 4,300 students. Uh, uh, Michelle mentioned one of the options 
probably talked about the most by virtue of having a parcel of land proper to the school division is building a new school up north. Um, that has some serious issues, um, it, but that is one of the op one of which is being caused, and it's not it is not positioned uh, where the growth is. I mean, although there is growth up north, the severe uh, capacity issues we have are both at Western Albemarle and Albemarle High School. So some of the solutions that we've looked at, and we certainly haven't yet decided, uh, we will have a presentation this uh, Thursday, uh, next Thursday by the, the consultant, are to modernize all of the high schools um, and have some smaller super hubs that could address the issues of modernization, capacity, and equity, because we have some very fine programs that are off, like our academies that are offered at the different high schools, but they're not genuinely accessible to all of the students. Um, any of these solutions are going to have to deal with transportation as well, um, which is a big issue. Uh, we will be having, I invite any of you, all of you, to our school board meeting um, on Thursday the 26th, yeah. is that right? Uh, where we will have an hour and a half presentation by the consultant to look at options, each of which has very different price tags, which is also a major variable. Which way is it going? It's coming to Mary. Oh, sorry. Yep, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually, um, I was at that meeting where they had um, all of the papers up on the wall and they were presenting to the school board a lot of the, um, the things that the consultants were recommending. They wanted to show ways that school is being done differently in other countries and in other states. Um, and what some of our choices and some of our possibilities would be. Uh, one of the things that was really intriguing to me that they talked about was the, the idea of having um, kind of two hubs where um, the students would be drawn in during the day for, um, for special programs, special classes. But I think that we do know we have a capacity problem, but what is interesting is how education has changed over the years. Um, for instance, libraries are just almost a thing of the past because if you look at Albemarle High School's library, the majority of that space isn't filled with stacks of books that the students are walking up to to take the book off the shelf. They still have books, don't worry. I was worried if someone's going to write a letter. What? There are no more letters? Um, but the use of the space is different. And with the addition of technology and with the, different, the addition of um, lots of different programs and study, we just don't have the need to have massive giant rooms filled with, with giant shelves of books. And so the libraries are starting to change. We don't necessarily need computer labs anymore. We used to dedicate space in our buildings for computer labs. So the structure of the building is not the only thing changing. It's also um, the, the instruction and uh, the path to study that the students are going to be taking. We do plan to have our students all taking internships in high school and being out in the community in buildings um, and getting some real life learning experience. And so when the students are not in the building for part of the day, that does mean that there has to be a capacity adjustment there as well. 
So I'm really interested to hear this presentation that they're going to give um, about the possibilities for high school and um, and especially the price tags too because you know we did just pass the bond referendum so um, if we're going to ask the community for another one we better have a really good reasoning behind it. Yeah I'm going to in terms of the high school, I've knocked on a lot of doors. I would say that by and large, the opinion that I'm hearing from a lot of people is that they have an interest in a new high school. I cannot profess to have the amount of knowledge that it would take to make that kind of decision, cost, uh, population projections, all those things. I'm looking forward to the presentation. I will say that the issue that is most important to me is equity and making sure that all of our students benefit from whatever we do. So the fear I have with building a school on the ground or on the property that was given to us is that it's going to further divide our students along socioeconomic and racial lines. It's going to be another western that's further up um, the feeder pattern, and we're going to concentrate low-income students in our urban ring. So that's something that I'd want to consider. Um, in terms of the alternatives, so like when I hear having the academies pulled out as hubs, the problem I see with that is I've heard from a lot of people that the makeup of our academies tends to be um, the same students who are attracted to advanced placements starting, starting when they're in elementary school or middle school. So I would hate to pull those students out and make them even further um, separated from the other student population. Uh, let me make sure. Uh, about the libraries, that's another, I know, I, I'm, I, it's why, why I'm running. Equity is what's important to me. And so with the maker spaces in our current library, I can't get behind not having computer labs. Not every student has access to computers at their house. Um, and our maker spaces and our new libraries are great. They're wonderful, but we need to make sure that all students are able to use those in a way that's beneficial to them. And I have heard from teachers um, at their doors that the students that they send to use those facilities, like the 3D printer, are the ones who are doing really well, um, are very advanced, and they can trust them in there. So it tends to be a lot of resources for the same students. So I would just want to make sure we're considering whatever we're considering, we're taking those considerations into mind. Uh, Julian? So I want to touch briefly on what Ms. Acuff had said about the transportation issues, because certainly when we look at uh, the existing uh, transportation within the county, uh, and particularly with regards to our three high school academies, uh, the, the Mesa Albemarle, uh, Hemsa at Monticello, and Isa at Western. Um, we don't provide a complete, a complete transportation solution for students uh, who are academically proficient and who may earn themselves admission into that program, uh, but we do to the Charles Albemarle Technical Education Center. And so for students who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, who live in the southern part of the county or who live up in the northern rural parts of the county, um, who may not have the time or the money to have access to those programs because of the distance they live or simply because um, they can't afford the transportation. Um, it seems to me like that in itself creates an unequitable divide. Um, and so when we look at the, the primary issue being transportation and how that relates to parity and equity of access, um, and we see that, that we're providing the, the single one-stop solution for transportation to Cape Deck, but not to the three high school academies, that, that is completely unfair to students who are academically proficient, but who may, because of their socioeconomic status, not be able to attend um, that program. And so when we look at creating a new high school anywhere within the county, 
Uh, we need to take into consideration the, the transportation and also the geography. Uh, is it accessible to students? Is it accessible to the community? And, and will it represent the community? One of the, the, the key things that, uh, that Jay Thomas, the outgoing, uh, the, the principal of, of Alvaro High School last year said to me um, when I met with him was that Alvaro High School truly is a microcosm of the community. It, it, it's a makeup of all the cultures that make up Alvaro County. And Western, where I went, is certainly not like that. Um, <laughs> And, and, and Monticello is the two lesser extent, so we just really need to make sure that when we look at a new high school or a new school anywhere within the district, that it is representative of the community and that it is accessible to the community and we able to promote instruction in a, in, in, in a stimulating environment. Um, when I think about the high school of the future, um, Kate mentioned the consulting firm that we had to come in and offer the board some suggestions that's going to be presented to the full board uh, at the next meeting. And like Kate said, we do invite all of you to come to that meeting. Uh, they showed us maybe three main alternatives. And one was to possibly build a new high school. But one drawback with that, and I'm not saying that we're going with either one of these three, but one drawback with the new high school is that probably the enrollment would be around 800. And in order for a school to really provide all of the different types of programs, that Albemarle has and to a lesser extent Western, there would have to be sort of like a threshold population. And that 800 may not be quite big enough. So coming up with the third, fourth high school, fourth traditional high school, may not be the best alternative. The second uh, thing that they took, showed to us was having satellites. And that we still have all of our three traditional high schools. But there would be satellites, possibly one somewhere between Ivy and Charlottesville, and the other one possibly somewhere north of Charlottesville. And during a certain part of the day, students from all of the schools might end up going to one of those satellites, depending on what the satellite might offer. It might have certain programs that other high schools may not have. So you'd possibly spend uh, some of your time at the satellite. That was one fascinating option. Then the third one was to have villages. And with that one, too, we'd still have the same three traditional schools. But with the village, there'd probably be about four or five sites in the county that might be offering different types of programs. So all three of those are really good um, alternatives to the overcrowding that's at Western and at Outlaw. It's at least three good options that we might have to sort of tackle those problems. All right. One more question. Uh, well, actually, you know, this is a different. This is a little different tack. Um, this question came from the Albemarle, uh, from the PTO Council. Why are curriculums being remodeled so frequently, causing confusion for teachers and students and parents? One year, math is leveled. Then it's decided that all kids should learn math together, regardless of ability. Then the next year, this changes again. Please comment. Uh, I think we're up to Mary to start. Right. Yeah, wow. Well, as a teacher, I've experienced this. Um, I feel like every two years something new is rolled out. Um, and actually, even at Agner Hurt, there are closets that are filled with curriculum that is brand new and still in the box and wasn't really taken out or used, and I may be in trouble for telling on them. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind that we are constantly learning new things about education, about the best ways to teach students, about what are the best um, things and the most important things, um, but that teachers need to some degree of autonomy in their classroom as well. 
um, a boxed curriculum where everything is scripted and in a perfect order, um, in a perfect world with a perfect student might work just fine, but that's not the reality of the world that we live in. So, you know, I want the, the curriculum that we are using to always be research-based, um, evidence-based, and for us to make really strong decisions about, about what we're doing, but to leave uh, room for teachers to make decisions within their classroom. Because I really do think that uh, as far as education for every single student and making sure that every student's individual needs are met, the best decisions are made the closest to that child. And the person who is the closest to that child all day is their teacher. And so certainly we can make um, large scale decisions as a community as far as pacing, um, where we want our goalposts to be for each age or grade. But I think that when we're talking about specific curriculum changes, um, we shouldn't be making a district-wide decision necessarily about that. And that, that may not be what this particular person is asking about, but that's just the tack I'm going to this website. Yep, been there too. Uh, I, I would go through these professional developments. We got them on Friday afternoon. I don't know who's whose decision that was, but it was horrible because after you were done teaching on Friday, you had to go to a professional development and they would always say, start off by saying, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. We're here to help you. But it felt like we were reinventing the wheel. We were coming up with our own curriculum. I, it felt like every day there was something new, like, okay, well, let me try to find a lesson that relates to this new thing. And they would just tack on more and more responsibilities and it was draining. And it was like, why don't we just have some set thing that we're using? Um, so I agree. It, it is problematic. It's also problematic for students. I moved around a lot when I was little. I was a military brat. Um, and I went to 10 different schools between the first grade and um, the 12th grade. And I remember jumping between a geometry class within the same state, um, actually within the same little district. And I was, it was a completely different thing they were teaching in another class. They were doing geometry constructions. We have to like use this protractor and, and draw things. And I, I'm, I like math. I became a math teacher. And it took me about a month to catch up with what was going on. And so with those experiences in mind, I would agree that we need to have a set curriculum so we're not giving our teachers extra work. And we need to at the very least have uh, pacing guides uh, that help keep our schools somewhat aligned while still allowing them some autonomy. So that, especially in our urban rings where we have a high amount of transiency, when students move between schools, they have some degree of consistency. So, uh, when we look at the rapid, uh, the, the rapidly shifting pace of instruction um, when it comes to the school system, I think that one piece that we often don't focus on is support that's there for the educators. Uh, and especially when it comes down to the number of instructional coaches that are available to help educators uh, through a new curriculum or through new program expectations. Um, the new overarching program that, that we're introducing as a county is, is High School 2022, and that's based off of uh, the changing graduation requirements from the Virginia Department of Education, known as the profile of a Virginia graduate. It, it, it hasn't been approved, um, but, but, but it's a guideline for, for how those graduation requirements will take shape and how we're expected to, to, to develop our students in terms of their academic comprehension. Uh, and this this is going to be something that shifts uh, sh that, that that will shift our, our, our pedagogy significantly. Uh, but 
but I think that what makes it difficult, uh, especially when it comes to students and teachers in the classroom, is not having the appropriate supports in place to make sure that teachers can adapt in the way that they need to. And certainly we do change a little bit too fast, and we should look at, at how can we set a four-year model for high school or a six-year model for elementary school and make sure we can stick to it and make sure that students are able to successfully make it through uh, their, their long period of time. Um, but that really when it comes down to it, it's providing supports for students and teachers so that they can understand uh, the curriculum that's being put in place and that we're not putting too many restrictions on teachers when it comes to how they're teaching their classroom. Everybody learns different and everybody teaches different. And I think that it's our, our duty as a school system to understand to understand that and give those freedoms in the classroom um, so that everybody can, can have their own experience. Uh, when I was a teacher out in Western, uh, one year we were involved in deciding on which um, science curriculum to use. So we had a whole bunch of projects. Each one had its own like alphabetical list of names. One was ESCP, the other was ESCS. Each one sort of stressed a certain thing and a certain way of being able to teach the students. But um, the main thing that we have to think about, I think, when we think about curriculum within the high school, is that one of our main functions here in Alma County is to make sure that our uh, graduating seniors are really productive citizens that can contribute to society. And that may not necessarily be that that kid would have to know a certain amount of facts or maybe a certain thing. So the main thing that we'd probably want to teach them would be how to think, how to look at things and think objectively about certain things and not necessarily a collection of facts. And so I think all of our uh, instructional programs, anything that we're trying in the classroom, should probably mostly focus on making the kids independent, good thinkers and being able to contribute to society. So that would be the main thing that I think we'd have to focus on rather than whether or not something changes every other year. But I think the main constant fact should be that we are trying to make them be productive citizens who can contribute to our society. I think this is a good question to differentiate what our school division does versus what our school board does. And our school division, we have a job as a school board to hire a superintendent and uh, the superintendent assembles a team and they decide on issues related to curriculum, not the school board. That is not our job. Our job is to look more broadly at policy and, we, and how to implement that policy. And, and for example, the, and we get informed, of course, about significant changes like profile of a graduate 2022 because it impacts how we're thinking about high school spaces. I mean, if in fact under this new policy promulgated by the De Virginia Department of Education that we need to facilitate getting our students in junior and senior years out into more community-based projects, that has an impact on the school board. A, we need to make sure we have uh, access in the community, inform the community about our needs to partner with businesses, with other organizations for so we can make sure we can find those positions, but it also impacts our calculations about how much space we might need as we're building out new high school facilities. 
If 50% of our 2,000 juniors and seniors are out of the building for 25 to 50% of the day, that means we don't need to have school rooms where all 4,000 students are lined up in chairs 20, for the entire school day. So curriculum impacts policy decisions and the reverse, but those, those educational, pedagogic, curriculum development decisions are the school divisions and not the school board. I think that covered everybody on that one. Okay. Okay. Um, this actually, this question, this next question, um, somewhat uh, segues from what you just were saying. Um, I'm going to ask you all to comment on your qualifications for planning and working with a proposed school budget that's submitted to the school board by the Board of Supervisors each year. Uh, I'm sorry, it's submitted by the school board to the Board of Supervisors each year. Do you have any philosophical underpinnings for how you see the proposed budget should be prepared? And let's see, I have to keep track now. I, Julian, I think we're back to the beginning again, yes. So when we look at our current budget, which is around $181 million, I believe, um, about 75% of that is made up of instructional costs. Uh, for me personally, uh, if, if I were to, 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 to be in charge of the philosophical process when I'm forming the budget, uh, my main priority would be ensuring that we place teacher compensation as the highest, uh, as one of the highest, if not the highest item on, on the budget makeup. I've had teachers tell me that they can teach out of a cardboard box that they that in some cases they don't they don't need fully modernized instructional space, but that it comes down to how effectively they can do their job as educators uh, and and making sure that we have the budget items in place to support teachers in those needs when it comes to to uh, textbooks uh, not or to textbooks to to classroom items not necessarily to having the the, the, the most modern learning spaces and not necessarily towards having the the uh, shiniest computers, um, but really making sure that we have that we can attract attract strong talent of, of educators, uh, and really making sure that those educators have the supports that they need. Personal costs are probably the most critical item for me. The second item is I feel like there's a lot of surplus monies that are being funneled into DARP, the Department of Accountability, Research, and Technology, um, and that those monies could also be used um, towards funding uh, some of our SPED programs. Uh, which will be seeing reduced funding as a result of of the lessening of the uh, reduced fiscal responsibility from the federal government, um, and I think that it's critical for us to keep up those areas uh, of the budget. And so I'd like to see us explore how we can take some of the surplus monies when it comes to our technology initiatives and move into some more of our critical instructional fields. Uh, and additionally, I'd like I'd love to see us reform uh, how we how we explore budgetary issues in terms of our transportation. I feel like there's often uh, surplus money that we spend on transportation, and then especially when it comes to revisiting um, how many routes run, how many routes of our uh, how much of our routes run full, which is um, less than I think 25 percent of our supposed routes um, run full. I think there's a lot of things that we can do to reform our transportation and make that a less expensive item on the budget. One of the main components of the school budget that I would be focusing on would be our teacher compensation. 
Um, the number of people who are enrolled in courses need teacher certification is really dwindling. So over the next few years here in Albemarle County, we're going to really have to be trying to recruit teachers from a pool that's coming smaller and smaller. And if we can't bring in some of the best teachers in our system, we'll begin to lose the excellence that it's sort of now enjoying, even though we do have some problems in the system. So that would be one of my top priorities, teacher compensation. Then also in order to make sure that our teachers are really able to communicate with all students and reach all students, professional development would be another really important thing that should be a part of that budget. We have a program called a Culturally Responsive Teaching, and that's sort of designed to help the teacher be able to sort of meet the needs of students who may not necessarily be from the same background that the teacher would be. So I'd really be involved in making sure that the budget would include some things about teacher professional development. We'd also probably need some materials in some of the classes, for instance, some of the science classes, or some other classes that might need specialized equipment. And then also SPED classes, special education. Um, the number of students in our school who have, who have uh, in a sort of category in special ed that's really needing more and more specialized teaching and more and more um, really focused activities has begun to grow over the last few years. So we really have to make sure that we make up for that too also, the SPED development. And then also our facilities. We can't let them sort of fall by the wayside either. So all of those things would be important things to me that the budget should make sure that it's included. <coughs> I have to lose my cough drop, sorry. Um, I came into the school board when we were still trying to emerge from the Great Recession and the school budget had been slashed and many efficiencies had been made. And some of the, many of those efficiencies were great. Uh, we do have a computerized bus routing uh, system that has been recognized uh, with numerous awards. We just had a budget. We just had. Uh, we just approved financing, 1.9 percent financing, to install LED lighting and. Uh, water uh, efficient plumbing that will, the, the saving energy savings alone will pay for the complete installation of LED in all of our 26 schools in 12 years and then we will reap the benefits of those efficiencies. So one is, is we really work hard to find efficiencies where we can. Uh, and as Julian said, our personnel costs, our instructional costs, is the biggest thing we do. We, we have 2,400 employees, half of them are teachers, but they're also, you know, our building services and everybody. And those are the things that we, we, you know, we need. We need to do it. So since I've been on the school board, we've been looking at areas that have been cut that were, um, that we've tried to restore. And by 2012, 70% of the professional development for our teachers had been slashed. And we had worked very hard to start bringing that back up because even though the priority in the budgeting over these past difficult years has been keeping our class sizes small, the evidence-based research shows that the most uh, important variable in a, in a child's education is a teacher. And we have not been investing in our teachers. We are looking at uh, increasing teacher compensation this round. We're struggling with the ramifications of that, um, but 
Okay. Uh, actually, Katrina, I'm going to start you out on this question. Um, this is this question came from the League of Women Voters. The 2017 General Assembly session completed last spring proposed over a dozen suggested school choice bills, including voucher bills offering tuition tax credits to parents. What is your opinion on the topic of school choice, including charter schools and vouchers, as they affect public education in Albemarle County? I am really happy with the current regulations we have in the Virginia Code, which are pretty strict about which charters can be approved. Um, there are only, I want to say, 10 charter schools in Virginia. They're all public charters, which means they're all in the purview of the school board. There's also other stipulations. They ha um, the purpose of them has to be to stimulate the development of innovative programs. It has to provide opportunities for innovative in uh, instruction and assessment. And it's a way to provide teachers with a vehicle for establishing schools with alternative units. So the, the, the purpose here is that the way we have it structured is to give an outlet to export, explore some of the more innovative pedagogy that we can do. And I think that can be really beneficial. Our charter school, Murray, I've knocked on the doors of three students who have told me how their experience at Murray allowed them to graduate when they thought that they would have dropped out. One man in particular said he was about to drop out and he got kicked out and sent to Murray and he ended up not only graduating, but going to college, getting a master's degree and finding a job he loved at 26. So I don't want to discount charter schools and say that they're evil or that they're bad. I think if they're done appropriately, they they can be good for the community. I think Yancey would have been a great place to put in a charter school if it was community-backed. Um, I'm not a fan of school choice in general. I do not want to put, I do not want to take money away from our public schools and give them their charter schools. I like the way that we have it structured right now. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that the main part of the question was about tuition tax credits, um, school choice, and vouchers. And I don't support vouchers in any form. Um, I believe that vouchers, uh, a good example of, of how they come across is me saying, you know what, my neighborhood park is not meeting my needs and I want my tax money back so I can go join the country club. Um, and we as people who recognize that public education is the foundation of our society and the foundation of our democracy, and we need our money to go into it for the greater good of all of us, um, we need to think of it as that and not as a pie that we want our piece back so we can take it somewhere else. Um, with that said, as far as tuition tax credits, it's really interesting that I think that the people who would need those the most are the ones who benefit from them the least. Um, the tax credit isn't going to do any good to the family who doesn't have the money to pay the tuition to the private school in the first place. Another problem with things, programs like that, and school choice also, is that with rural families where all they have is one option and it's their public school, it doesn't benefit them at all. So you have to think about what is the purpose of the program? Who are we most trying to help? What is the end goal? And, and look at it from that perspective. So I just don't see any way that we can actually implement things like school choice and vouchers and tuition tax credits um, in this community and say that we are doing what is best for every student. Covering a lot of territory. Uh, I'm opposed to uh, vouchers and, and, and the headline of school choice is often raised in communities where the schools aren't very good. 
or where there's a high concentration of poverty and the community isn't investing enough in bringing all students up. As I said at the outset, we're top performing school division. We have uh, St. Anne's uh, students applying to go to our academies in high school. Um, we have tried to build into our school offerings a variety of educational pathways, of uh, academies, we're rethinking the academies. Julian, just to let you know, to make them, maybe break them up into smaller chunks and have open up uh, more access to them. We, until, I didn't know we had 10 charter schools in the state, mm -hmm. but for a very long time, we had two and there were only four. But we have, we have two charter schools already. Um, we have a variety of different options for our students. And one of our overarching goals in crafting the types of offerings we have is finally engage every student. Find a way to engage every student. And then I think, I think in the most benign view of charters or vouchers, that's what that goal is. But we're already doing a very good job with that in Albemarle County Schools. Yes, um, just about everybody said, I sort of agree that um, I don't really, I'm not in favor of either vouchers or school choice really. With school choice, it could end up with a lack of diversity in the school. It could be that some of the more select students, if that's the right term, might end up leaving a certain school and leaving a population at that school that may not be very diverse uh, at all. With vouchers also, it's really in the long run taking money away from our public schools. So I would not be in favor of that. And with the charter schools, as long as that school is being controlled by our local, uh, I mean our local school board, I would agree with charter schools because they usually fill out a need that maybe the community um, would need that's not being met by some of the traditional high schools. But if this charter school is going to be controlled by either the state or by some private foundation, I would not be in favor of it. It would have to be controlled by our local school board. So vouchers are sort of a false promise, um, and especially when we look at them as the idea that they're going to open up opportunities for, for, for economically disadvantaged students. Um, it, it, it's just simply not, not not true. I mean, it tends to be that that, that those private schools that students receive vouchers to, um, it's a very streamlined, it's very single, it, it's very singular demographic that attends those schools, and the students who have their hopes to, to receive a voucher, the vouchers don't wind up being enough to cover that tuition cost anyway uh, for, for those schools. Um, and, and so I, I think that it's really a, just a broken system, and it doesn't offer any promise when we look at creating responsible citizens. It certainly doesn't expose everybody to a diverse um, range of viewpoints, and it certainly doesn't expose anybody to to, to a diverse demographic makeup either. Uh, when it comes to charter schools, uh, our charter schools, as as uh, as was previously mentioned, are, are publicly maintained by our school board. Uh, and state law actually limits us to two uh, public public charter schools. Um, uh, currently, our uh, two charter schools, Murray High School and uh, Community Public Charter, which are in the same building, uh, but differentiated uh, because Murray's a high school and Community Public Charter is a, is a non, it is a middle school. The main purpose of those is to provide a learning and an, instruct and an instructional experience that students could not get 
uh, at our three traditional high schools. Uh, it provides instructional opportunities that are different, that are diverse, that are creative. Um, and it's really, it's, it's meant to be a, a bed for us to explore new methods of instruction that might help students who can't uh, benefit from the traditional learning environment. I think that's something we need to stress. Um, as we see declining enrollment and declining interest in our two public charter schools in recent years, we really, we really need to find a way to make sure that they are offering those diverse, new, and creative instructional opportunities that are going to benefit students who can't fit in, into the uh, traditional mold of our three public high schools. Uh, I, I cannot believe how quickly this time has gone by. Um, I think I'm going to try and squeeze one more question in that came from the audience. Uh, and uh, then we'll go to the uh, uh, final uh, summaries from each of you. Um, it's a very simple question. It says, do you agree with the closing of Yankee Elementary School? And if no, what would you do to improve student achievement that has not already been tried that supports your decision? Uh, I have to remember where I stopped. I think... You skipped to me. Yes. I think it might be Graham. It might be Graham, yes. If you kept up with the news at all during the whole episode of Yancey being closed, I was one of the two people on the school board who was strongly against closing the school. And that was because of two main reasons. Ordinarily, if anything that's that dramatic and traumatic is going to happen, the board usually spends quite a bit of time working on it. And I know I'm not going to be agreed with on all of this, but um, the process involving Yancey was really very quickly done. From the time that it was first introduced to the board as an option of closing it or doing something with the building, to closing it was one month. And ordinarily that's not something that happens. So that's one main thing that I had with closing Yancey. Um, I don't think that we explored because with the charter that was um, granted to us, there was still one year left in that charter. And there were still some other options that could have been tried against it. I'm not sure what uh, other things could have been done, but UVA was the partner, and they were coming up with some alternatives or some ways to sort of address the problem at Yancey. And so with the loss of the charter, it was only active for two years rather than for three. And with the speed that the process occurred, I was completely uh, against closing against it. And I'm not sure um, you know, what else I could say about that, but I was completely opposed to the way that it was done and the timing with it. Okay. Um, yeah, I forget. I think it goes to Julian. That's right. Okay. Great. Musical school board microphones. Um, so I'm from the outside, I'll say that I was against the, the closing ENC. I think it ultimately comes down to a trust issue with our rural communities. Um, in that, as Mr. Page mentioned, the, the time that it took for us to go from, from explicitly mentioning the closing of the school um, to actually voting on closing it was an extraordinarily short period of time. Um, and even though we had had multiple conversations, the school board had had multiple conversations uh, prior to, to, to that vote uh, in, 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 in a year and a half or two years uh, before the closing took place, there was no context in that conversation about explicitly the, the closure of the school. Um, and I, I think it was a frustrating process for members of the community because it felt largely like, like their opinions had been ignored. Um, and and, and I, 
that that to me indicates a broader issue with with the transparency process when it comes to the decision making of the school board um, and also when it comes to taking input from our from our communities in general. Uh, we see it when it comes to our redistricting. Uh, we see it, I just came from a meeting with Western Mall High School and there are many teachers who are upset with, with the planning process for the new classroom that they're receiving. So communication and transparency overall uh, seems to be an issue when it comes to the decision making process and especially when it comes to ANSI. That we had a meeting that went until 11.30 at night um, when members of the of the ISMA community were discussed, were talking to the school board and expressing their desire that the school remain open and that the board remain, and that the board explore additional possibilities, and the sense that I and I think many other people got from that vote was that the minds of the school board members had already been made up. It's not a transparent process that occurs when that happens. It's certainly not a transparent process when it takes one month to close the school. Um, and, and, and I think that we really need to just explore how these decisions are taking place so that they don't negatively affect our communities and our trust with the communities in the future because the school board and our schools are built on a foundation within the community and that's so critical, we can't betray it ever. I think it comes now to you, oh, oh wait, yes, uh, I'm, I can't remember which of the two of you now. Sorry, I don't know I, think it's yours. Yeah. I didn't know if you were pointing at her. No, Kate's going to be last in okay. this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm flipping ends here. Okay. <laughs> I'm happy to talk, I'll yeah. talk. There you go. Um, yeah. I'm going to echo a lot of what they're saying, which is that, uh, so my family is from, my dad's family is from Scottsville. Um, my cousin actually lives catty corner to Yancey. I went to a party at her house recently and I parked at the Yancey building because it's not getting used anymore, so I used that as parking and walked over. It's a community school and I think we did it a disservice by moving so quickly in the process. It is the same thing that Graham and Julian said, I think there needs to be more transparency. So I've been running for school board, I've been meeting with a lot of people, and I cannot vouch for any of this information, but I was just hearing a lot of things behind the scenes, like, oh, and I have no idea if this is true, um, but oh, you know, half of the teachers had already said they weren't coming back, so there was no option but to close it. Um, and things like that, and it just, I would have loved to, um, I don't know if that's true or not, it's, but I, I hope that that impression could, was different and that people felt like they had a say and that it mattered what they said and that it wasn't already a decision, that was a done deal the moment that they came into the meeting. I also wish we had spent just a little bit more time on the outcomes. I mean, the decision's been made at this point, so what I want to make sure is not happening is that we are not putting students into other schools where they're, um, the, the same issues that they were dealing with at Yancey are just hidden over at Red Hill or Scottsville. I want to make sure that those students get the supports that they need. There's a research paper out recently talking about how closing low-performing schools and moving them into other schools um, can effectively mask them. I feel like I'm talking to you, Kate, <laughs> making my plea. <laughs> so my plea would be to just make sure that those students are um, adequately being served and they're not just getting lost in the fold. And, yeah. No. Mary. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's really easy to be um, a backseat driver, I think, at this point after the car has already been turned. So you have to listen to what we say and know that um, we weren't on the board and we didn't have all of the information that they had at that time. With that said, I do feel like it was a mistake. Um, and I'm not sure what I would have done if I were on the board at that time. But across our country, many, many school systems are closing their smallest and their most rural schools. And we just did that here. Um, and they said multiple times it wasn't about the budget, and then it kept coming back to the budget. And they said multiple times it wasn't about the low performance, and then it kept coming back to that too. And it's like, what is it really about? 
Um, what it really is about is that we didn't figure out what happened at Yancey, so we can't prevent it in the future, and we aren't going to know what to do or how to fix it if it happens at any other school. And that's really, really concerning. So we just washed our hands of that and walked away. I'm not really comfortable with that. It was the center of the community there. Um, that, that is tearing the heart out of a group. And um, that's a really, really big decision that I think we will have, we will feel the impact of that down in the Esmont community for a very, very long time. Um, the speed of the process was really concerning. Um, it did not seem completely transparent, absolutely. I've heard a couple people say that. The money that we were told was going to be gone and was one of the reasons why they had to make that decision so quickly isn't actually gone. There are still schools that are receiving that money right now. And so we made a decision on money that might go away but didn't go away. Um, and that's concerning to me. So, you know, I see our school board as the representatives of the community, and I think that part of their job is to hold county staff accountable. And someone needs to hold county staff accountable for what happened at Yancey, because I think that they were given a disservice, um, and the students, this was done to them. It wasn't their failure, it was our failure as a school system, and we need to figure out why that happened. Um, and I was really disappointed that the school board didn't ask for better answers as to how they got there and why they weren't fixing it. Okay. I guess I'm wrap up. Yeah. <coughs> I think it was the right decision to do it. And, and, and even acknowledging the deep uh, commitment and support that a lot of the Esmont community had for having a school and acknowledging the really important history of that school. I think when you ask what was best for those students, this has been a challenging school for a decade. Uh, enrollment, Cooper, Weldon Cooper had predicted, projected that it would dip under 100. We had a little bit higher, maybe 108. Uh, we had been spending Money wasn't the dispositive issue for sure, but notwithstanding almost double the per student uh, expenditures over the past decade for Yancey students as compared to Brownsville, they were unaccredited. Um, they, we had a specialist from UVA that I talked to frequently, uh, and she didn't think it was genuinely a good turnaround potential. Uh, we had half of the students that we, half of the teachers that we had just recruited for the school uh, on, in the, under the state's turnaround plan had asked to be reassigned. Um, the I thought the most telling part for me is we had as many parents, I'm not talking about the community, I'm talking about actual parents with students in the school. We had more asking for us to close the school than we had asking us to keep it open. Once the decision was made in June, well, end of May, uh, we had had one letter from a parent, only one, and that was a parent that testified twice in favor of closing, saying that she didn't want to continue sending her children to an unaccredited school and that she was concerned about after-school programming, which we've been trying to work on. Uh, it was an unfortunate decision, I know, for the community, and a very tough one. I don't think it was an unfair, and I think it was absolutely in the best interest of those students. Okay. Well, thank you, Wally. I'm going to give you now 
your chance to just do it again, two minutes, summary of your candidacy, uh, and uh, I'll allow you to uh, go back in the same order that we started, which is starting with Julian and working down the, the panel here. So I, I think we've had a good discussion tonight about a broad range of issues, and I thank the we get again for hosting the forum this evening. Um, my candidacy for the school board has really been about, to me, making sure that we have a voice that can speak accurately to the concerns of students and teachers. Um, we really need somebody on the board who can say what's going on now in the classroom. The landscape of education, especially in Alpharetta County, is constantly changing. And I've seen that in my policy work, in the policies that, 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 that I helped develop and the programs that I've been a part of. I, I already see that impacts on, on, on high schools, on middle schools, and elementary schools. And, and I think that it's critical for us to have somebody who's fresh out of the system, who can speak to their experiences, and who can speak to the needs of students and teachers so that we have a voice that's directing that policy and that leadership um, from a voting role. Uh, to me, my main concerns, as I, as I stressed earlier, I really believe that we need to, 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 to focus on equity, and I think the best way that we can do that is through expanding our early childhood education. It allows us to close the achievement gap, and it's a smart long-term investment because early investments in childhood education lead to lower student expenditures in secondary and, and middle school. Um, so ultimately, the program would be budgetarily self-sustaining. My second issue, uh, transportation. I really think we need to do a better job of making transportation accessible to every single student when it comes to our three high school academies, making sure that, that all of those options are available to students, regardless of where they live within the county. Uh, the same as it is for the Charlottesville Alvarez Technical Education Center, where they want a vocational uh, experience or whether they want an academic experience. And the third one for me is really making sure that, we're, that we are rewarding teachers for the work that they do for our students. Uh, instruction is, is the main reason that we have a school system, and teachers are the single greatest task that we have available to ensuring that our students have a positive, stimulating, and overall comprehensively rewarding instructional experience. And I think we need to do more for teacher compensation and make sure that they are rewarded appropriately. Uh, first, a teacher in Alabama County cannot afford the cost of living, and I would prioritize teacher compensation on the budget ahead of other items such as our technology initiatives. Thanks again to the lead for sponsoring the, uh, the forum tonight. Um, our students, uh, our schools rather, are doing an excellent job in most categories working with our students. Examples of the work that we are doing are the STEM Academy at Alma, the Health Sciences Academy at Monticello, the Environmental Science Academy at Western. Another example is the foreign language programs in Meriwether Lewis, Woodbrook, and Cale. A third uh, example is our own time graduation rate, drop-out rate, and number of students earning advanced studies to, uh, diplomas, which are all above the state averages. A final example of the great work that we're doing is our performance on the SOLs. But in spite of all of these successes, there are issues within our system that need improvement. One would be to make sure that what happened at Yancey which uh, Kate and I never agree on and never will. Um, <laughs> right, we do respect each other. We do. And so that would be one thing to make sure that an issue like that does not happen again. Other examples of things that I think that we really need to improve on would be uh, closing the socioeconomic and racial achievement gaps, planning the curriculum for the high school of the future, addressing overcrowding in the northern and western theater patterns and making sure that our teachers and other personnel are receiving adequate compensation in order to recruit and retain the best teachers that our system can afford. 
My experience as a classroom teacher and member of the Long Range Planning Committee has given me insight in these areas. I also work as a mentor with students through the mentorship program with 100 black men, and so I have connections with current students in our school system. My visits to classrooms and programs involving our students also gives me insight and feedback on issues facing our schools. I ask for your support to re-elect me to the school board. I'm committed to maintaining the excellence that we enjoy in many areas, but also improving the areas in which we recognize problems. I would like to have another term on the school board to bring my, my background and in law and policy and my four years of experience being on the school board to carry forward some of the projects that were most, uh, most important to me. Uh, and that's providing continued support, whether it's restoring professional development or addressing teacher compensation. Dealing with our backlog of uh, capital projects and making decisions about how can we educate our high school students uh, in the future? What are some good choices that we have for buildings, internships, curriculum, how can we really make sure that we're preparing our young people to be lifelong learners and equipped for education, for uh, higher ed, military jobs, and being good citizens? Um, it's a tough job, and one of, but it, it, it's a fascinating job because in the space of four months, we will have made decisions about hiring a new superintendent, redistricting, what kind of high school situation we want, and teacher compensation. So it's a diverse mix of jobs that are really at a big policy level. And one of the jobs that we have as school board members is communication, which is why it's so great that the League has sponsored this forum. One of the, my priorities has been working uh, more closely with the Planning Commission, uh, having more frequent meetings with the Board of Supervisors so we don't just plop a budget on their plate and then say, oh my goodness, they, they know what's coming. And communicating, uh, I, you know, anybody who wants to interview me, I've said yes, and I've been interviewed multiple times by all the media outlets. Because I think it's really important to let the community know what we're doing, uh, what kind of input we would like, um, and how much we appreciate the support that the community gives to the public school. Oh, well, I messed up again, and this time I was like, I don't remember the last year. Sorry. <laughs> One job. <laughs> um, this campaign has been um, amazing, and it's probably been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I have learned so much about our schools, about our community, about my health. Um, about our family, about our children. Um, you know, just getting to talk to people so much and being out and so involved, I have realized how few people really know anything about educational policy issues. And that makes me sad. Um, and the ones who know about them don't necessarily care enough to even come to a, <laughs> a forum on a weeknight. Um, how do we get other people to care about other people's children? That's one of the things that just perplexes me. And I talk to people all the time. I'm trying to make them care. I'm trying to make them listen. I'm trying to help them 
um, feel empowered to drive the decisions our community is making. And so that was one of the main reasons I joined this campaign. I really wanted to have a voice and be able to bring a fresh perspective. At the end of the day, I'm a mother, and I'm always going to be an educator, and I'm going to approach all decisions that I make from those lenses and from my experience. Um, and I will always make sure that the decisions I make are not just what's best for my child, but they are what's best for all children here. Um, I hope to serve on the board not just as a voice of experience, but as a powerful advocate and someone who's not afraid to ask hard questions. I'm not afraid to have hard conversations. Um, and I'm a collaborative and hard-working member of our community. And I feel like I am invested in this, and I hope that I will have your support. First, let me just start by saying thank you so much for having me here. Um, thank you for the wonderful question, and thank you for showing up. I know it's pretty late. I'm feeling it. Um, an hour ago, I started off by saying I care about children. I hope that has come across in my answers. And if it hasn't come across in my answers, I hope it's come across in my actions. I've dedicated my career and education to working on behalf of children and students. I've, I've shown this dedication as a teacher, um, as someone who made the commitment to study child advocacy and educational law, and as a mother who has taken my, my child to just about every child-centric activity in town, including classes right here in this library. Um, I mentioned earlier that I took time off to raise my boys, and so for some people that means I'm not an educator anymore, but tell that to my boys who ask about 100 questions a day, ranging from how fast is a rocket car, to the one I got yesterday, why is there white fuzz on our pumpkins? The answer is I need to throw them out. <laughs> and the reason I'm mentioning this is because um, I want to anchor all of my conversations about our schools and about the opportunity gap, which is the issue that's near and dear to my heart, in this one fundamental truth. We all want what is best for our children. And to me, that is a really comforting fact. It's something that's motivating because I know that, oh well, I saw it in the parents that I taught. I saw it in the parents that I counseled before disciplinary meetings, and I know it as a mother. We all want what is best for our children. And I know that by working together and knowing that we're all striving for the same goals, we can make our great schools even better. And that to me is really uplifting and positive, which is why I'm out there working hard. Um, the answer, by the way, is 763 miles per hour. That's how fast the fastest rocket car can go. <laughs> I would love to have your vote and support on November 7th, and I'm happy, even though it's late, I'm happy to stay and answer questions if you have any. Audience, these people do deserve a round of applause.